The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, your Chest podcast host. Thank you all for joining us today for something I'm very excited about. Today is the first part of a series of podcasts with Dr. James Stoller, where we will be discussing leadership development in line with his series of articles published in Chest. Dr. Stoller is a pulmonary and critical care physician and the chairman of the Education Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Gene Wall Bennett Professorship of Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and the Samson Global Leadership Academy Endowed Chair. His pulmonary research interests regard alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and he has served on the board of directors for the Alpha-1 Foundation. And his interest in leadership and leadership development stems from his pursuit of a master's in organizational development, and he serves as the adjunct professor of organizational behavior at the Weatherhead School of Management of Case Western Reserve University and honorary visiting professor at the Bayes School of Business in London of UK. Also directed the American Thoracic Society's Emerging Leaders Program and directs the American College of Chess Physicians Leadership Development Course. His recent book, Better Humans, Better Performance, regards achieving high organizational performance through creating cultures anchored in the seven classical virtues. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Stoller. Well, Gretchen, what a, what a pleasure to, to be here. I'm delighted and flattered to be asked. Well, let's go ahead and get started. My first question is, why did you decide to write on this? Why is it necessary for physicians to develop these leadership skills when they're not necessarily in a defined leadership position? Well, it's a great, it's a great question, Gretchen. And, and I think the, the discussion begins with the idea that leadership matters, and it matters irrespective of title. Um, doctors lead, as you know, uh, in many, many different ways. We lead on rounds. Uh, if you have a title, uh, then you lead in a broader context organizationally, but we lead all the time. And the argument is made that the competencies to lead matter in every context. Richard Bomer, a doc who taught at Harvard Business School, uh, has written about what he calls big L leadership, uh, leadership with titles and small L leadership, which is leadership at an organic level, which is something that every doctor does. So these competencies matter whichever role you hold. Um, the other dimension of this, I would say, is that, is that, and I've argued that the competencies, at least in the hidden curriculum or the traditional curriculum of medical training, 
the competencies that we learn as a doctor or scientist are in some ways antithetical to leadership competencies. We're, we're, we're traditionally trained as what Tom Lee, my friend Tom Lee, um, Dr. Tom Lee is called heroic lone healers. You know, we're taught to, to sort of be Viking warriors or gladiators. And that's a, that's a leadership style that is generally ineffective. So leadership is different than clinical competency. I'll stop there. I completely agree. And thank you for discussing that. So when we talk about leadership virtues, there are known classic virtues like trust, compassion, courage, justice, wisdom, temperance, and hope, which you actually discuss in your article. But there are also specific leadership skills unique to healthcare leadership. Can you discuss some of those? Sure. Um, Just a word about the virtues as a prelude to my answer to your excellent question. Um, First of all, you know, the seven classic virtues, the argument is made, and, and there's plenty of evidence to support that that when leaders create cultures that are anchored in those virtues, trust, compassion, hope, courage, etc., that those environments, those cultures unleash the discretionary effort in the organization. What does that mean? That means discretionary effort means that people will do the right thing when no one is watching. And, and that's where high performance comes from. So so leadership, whether in healthcare or any organization, um, in the ideal, in my view, and certainly my co-authors' views, um, great leadership comes from developing cultures that are anchored in the seven virtues. Now, with regard to your specific questions about competencies to lead in healthcare, there are there are many, and and my lens around this comes from trying to design curricula to teach leadership in healthcare. And so that begs the question, what, what skills are we trying to develop? What's the learning agenda? And, and I think there's about five or six things. The first is what I might call technical knowledge and skills. And by this, I don't mean technical knowledge as a pulmonary critical care sleep doctor. Uh, I mean, skills around healthcare, knowing something about operations, knowing something about finance and accounting, knowing something about IT, knowing something about diversity, equity, and inclusion, knowing something about strategic planning. All of those technical competencies don't have to have an MBA, don't have to be an accountant, but need to understand the language. The second is a sort of a generic knowledge of healthcare. You know, how we're paid, what's the legislative environment for the specific leadership role you hold, what are the regulatory issues, whether it's uh, the Joint Commission or the your state's Department of Health or in education, of course, we have the ACGME and the ACCME and the LCME and understanding how that works. Third, perhaps being a problem solver, fairly generic, but important leadership competency. Um, fourth, perhaps very important, being a communicator. And by communication, I mean in all contexts, one-on-one, when there's conflict, one-on-one when there's negotiation, and then also at the podium uh, in addressing large, larger groups. Um, sort of a platitude, but equally true here for being a great doctor is, is, being, uh, is being committed to lifelong learning. Uh, leadership competencies like pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine are, are evolving and one has to be current. And then last and perhaps most important in my view is being emotionally intelligent. And there's, of course, a whole construct of what emotional intelligence means. 
but I, I think many of us understand the fundamentals. So that, that's what I would regard to be the competencies to lead in healthcare and the curriculum around which we need to develop leadership development courses for doctors. Love that. So I guess a lot of people in medicine have different managerial positions, if you will. But how is managing really different than leading? Well, another great question, Gretchen. Thank you for that. Um, so they're clearly related, uh, and they're both really important. They complement one another. They they both involve things like deciding what has to be done, creating networks, and ensuring the work gets done. Um, but they differ importantly in that management is really about predictability and order. It's a, around schedules and and efficiency and organizing and staffing and budgets, you know, avoiding variances. Leading, on the other hand, is about, it's about disruption. It's about producing change for a better future state. It involves having vision and setting direction. It involves aligning people. It involves motivating and inspiring, uh, to, to, again, to harvest and unleash the discretionary effort in the organization. Uh, I guess there's a quote from Peter Drucker, who's a, a very famous organizational consultant, passed away about 20 years ago now. And he has a great quote about managing versus leading. And he says, and I quote from Peter Drucker directly, that management is doing things right and leadership is doing the right thing. So that subtle difference, I think, frames the distinction between managing and leading. I'll stop there. Thanks. Great. And I, I love that quote. So in your article, you discuss something you call a healthcare leadership paradox. Can you please explain that for our listeners? Well, thank you again for the question, Gretchen. Um, I alluded to this a little earlier in my remarks, but but this is fundamentally what I regard to be this paradox. On the one hand, I think we all recognize that outstanding outcomes in, in healthcare depend critically on teamwork and collaboration. You know, in the ICU, you know, it, it's not a solitary effort. It's mobilizing all the resources and the talents in the group, nursing, respiratory therapists, doctors of all different disciplines. The second component of the paradox is that it's very clear and the data completely supports the idea that patients judge their care on their perception of the human dimension of their care, including importantly, how well the team works together in service of their, of their treatment and their getting better. And I don't mean just the medical team, I mean the dietary services and the environmental uh, environmental services people and, and nurses and, and so on. But the paradox is that at least traditionally hospitals are silo-based. And even in our own field of pulmonary critical care and sleep, over time, we have, of course, gotten more and more subspecialized, such that some people specialize in asthma and ILD and transplant and pH and et cetera. You know the drill. And so we tend to, to get more siloed. Uh, and, and then lastly, the paradox is that I alluded to this before, that I believe there are features of medical training that actually conspire against, against collaboration by doctors, including the fact that, um, that we're all at risk for, for a phenomenon I've called extrapolated leadership. I'll give you an example of what I mean, and I'll own it um, um, in this case, you know, like you and every one of our colleagues listening that's a pulmonary doc, patients come to see us with shortness of breath uh, frequently, and not only shortness of breath, but commonly shortness of breath. And 
they confer to us the authority we deserve because you and I and everyone listening here has devoted their life to figuring out how to make breathless people less breathless. The problem is when I leave clinic and I go to a restaurant with my wife and there's a line, I'm likely to say, stand on line, I'm an expert in dyspnea. And, and, and the point is we tend to extrapolate authority to contexts in which it doesn't work. This is part of the gladiator mindset that, that affects many of us, hopefully not all of us, but certainly affects us. And, and that, the, the, that mindset um, of extrapolated authority and, and also being deficit-based, you know, we see, we see problems as doctors. Leaders, leaders need to be appreciative. Leaders need to be strength-based. Uh, and leaders need to be humble. And so some of these attributes of medical training actually undermine our ability to be leaders. And I can tell you in my own journey through this, I've been working on myself my whole life to try to be a better leader as, as well as a better doctor. Others will judge whether any of that is, you know, I'm successful in any regard. But but the point is that we're always a work in progress and and, and all of this is aspirational but we have to be intentional about developing leadership competencies. So I'll stop with that. So in the article, you also discuss Goldman six leadership styles in the article. And there are actually a lot of different ways that you can lead. And you discussed earlier about how we select people with certain leadership styles that may not be the most effective. So can you please outline those different leadership styles for our audience? Sure. This is this again with attribution. This is the work of Dan Goldman and uh, Richard Boyatzis, who's a colleague of mine at the Weatherhead School of Management, and, and Annie McKee, who's at, at, uh, at Penn. And th- their work talks about six styles. Uh, and I'll just uh, liter- uh, enumerate them for you. The first is what we would call command and control. So I point my finger and say, Jamie, just do it. The second is what they would call pace setting. And that's sort of you know, showing how great you are. Everyone's looking on with admiration uh, and you're just, uh, you know, having the um, the whiz bang, look at me show pace setting. The third is is a democratic style, which means I get input by inviting participation, harvesting the wisdom of the group, if you will. The fourth is related, what they call an affinitive style, which connects people with one another in order to get a great outcome, fostering collaboration. The th- the, the, the fifth is a coaching style, which we well recognize in medicine. Imagine you're the attending on July 1st with new interns and you're about to do a procedure, thoracentesis. You know, when, when that's the case, the attending is standing, hovering over the intern, straddling the ribs, making sure that the needle goes over the top and not um, you know, underneath the rib for all the reasons we all understand, coaching. And, and the last is a visionary style, which is somewhat like perhaps akin to Mahatma Gandhi, setting this vision of a new future state that aligns with people and brings them along. And while each of these styles is distinctive, um, leadership scholars tell us that leaders need each of these styles in their wheelhouse. They need to have all of them available to them and know when to deploy which style, uh, something that's called situational leadership, if you will. And are any of these leadership styles like more superior to others or have they been shown in the data to be more likely to produce favorable results? Well, that's another great question, Gretchen. Um, so the work again of, of Goldman, Biotis and McKee takes these styles and segregates them into two buckets. The first they call a dissonant style, 
and the second they call a resonant style. By dissonant, they means, uh, and, and their work was to primarily, uh, the study that they did that defines this work is to have characterized the primary leadership style of the CEO of a variety of organizations, not in healthcare, by the way. And they reflected that primary style against the financial performance of the organization. And what they showed in their data was that when leaders primarily have a command and control style or a pace setting style, as I described before, those organizations tended to perform less well than organizations in which the primary style of the CEO was one of the other four so-called resonant styles, being democratic, being affinitive, coaching, visionary, et cetera. So again, the, the fact that, that this observation doesn't belie the idea that leaders need all of these styles in their quiver and need to know when to deploy which style. That uh, brings we, us back to, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say uh, one example would be, for example, in a code, right? So you go to the head of the bed. That's a, that's a style when command and control is absolutely important, right? I'm telling people what to do. I'm also engaging them, but if we need to, you know, defibrillate now, it's defibrillate now. Uh, it's not a dialogue. Uh, so command and control works in some circumstances. It just doesn't work in all circumstances. I'll stop there. No, oh, that makes sense. And it, it brings us back to that concept that you mentioned just a couple minutes ago of situational leadership. What is situational leadership? So, again, this is a, a model that's been well articulated by by people like Ken Blanchard. And the, the basic idea is that leaders need to adjust their style to the level of competence and the level of commitment to the people that are being led. So if I have a highly competent, highly committed individual, I, I remember uh, working with you, Gretchen, when, when you were training at our place. Um, you know, as you are highly committed and highly competent, that justifies uh, sort of a laissez-faire style from a leader, and which is sort of leave you alone, uh, check in every once in a while, but you're on your own and doing a fine job. On the other hand, on July 1st, when you're a brand new intern, you're highly committed, but your level of competence is not where it needs to be. So in that circumstance, situational leadership suggests that the effective leadership style is to be much more coaching right? And, and, and hovering, uh, as I mentioned before. And so these are examples of the versatility of styles that are necessary uh, in, in the Blanchard situational leadership model. I hope that clarifies, I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. And I think this has been a great talk. So as we finish up this particular podcast, can you please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Sure. Uh, thank you again for the opportunity. I would say, again, leadership matters, uh, and that in contrast to our clinical and scientific skills, there are discrete competencies to lead. These can be learned. Um, uh, there's ample data to support that, and it requires intentionality. Uh, so a commitment to, to get better at leadership, just as we're committed to getting better at being pulmonary critical care and sleep doctors. That would be my final thought. I love it. Well, a big thank you to Dr. Stoller for sharing his time and expertise with us today. We're looking forward to part two of this series. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us today. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast.
Until next time.